Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Edgar Peterson. I work um, at the University of Cape Town, and uh, there I'm based at the African Centre for Cities. Um, it's, uh, it's a particular delight to be here because I feel ensconced between two families. Uh, I'm an alumni of LSE, and, and I currently work at UCT, of course, and, uh, and I remain involved with LSE through uh, my participation in, on the advisory board of, <clears throat> of LSE cities. So to see this warm, cozy um, a growing relationship is a, is a, is, is a, is a very personal uh, delight. Um, I've got a greater delight in having the privilege of being asked to moderate the session, but in particular uh, to introduce our second keynote speaker for this evening, uh, Professor Tandika Makandawira. Um, and uh, it's very difficult for me to look at his illustrious CV and, you know, and I read his work and so forth and not to um, have a little uh, naughty smile cross my face. Um, and the reason for this is that um, in 1992, um, I got a passport for the first time. And, uh, and a very close friend of mine, that's a mutual friend of ours, uh, Abdul Malik Simon, dragged me by the scruff of my neck to West Africa. And we spent uh, two and a half months uh, between Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria, and Senegal. And we ended up in Dakar. And um, that's when we met the first time. And we met in a fantastic nightclub in Dakar. <laughs> and um, uh, and uh, it was uh, so well into the evening, and the music was pumping. And, uh, and, and, and to my great delight, I discovered that great intellectuals can be amazing dancers <laughs> and uh, with an insatiable appetite uh, for music. Um, and that image has always stuck with me, that it is possible to combine a fantastic intellectual endeavor with, uh, with, with, with fun and with pleasure. And I think it is absolutely appropriate that we bring the sensibility to the complexities of, uh, of the African development challenges. Um, Tandika has, has got an incredible career, and he's in some ways a model African intellectual, in the sense that he's deeply engaged uh, with the underlying academic disciplines that help us to understand and interpret and theorize the world, but has also moved between different kinds of institutional settings. I met him in Dakar at the time, because he was then director of Codestria, which is one of the oldest and most important academic associations, uh, pan African academic associations, and that have, through the darkest years of our post-colonial era, kept the torch of academic freedom and intellectual independence and rigor alive. And, and he led that institution for quite some time and has just told me in the, in the briefing room that, that he remains involved and is, in fact, presently engaged in helping them plot their own futures. Uh, Tandeka then moved on to UNRIST, which is a very significant, and some of you may not have heard of it, but a very important United Nations research body that was absolutely central to the pushback against the Washington consensus and the neoliberal hegemony of the 1980s and was really remaining, in a sense, if you will, inherited that very important strand of development economics and development thinking that has always insisted on the connection between human well-being and, of course, uh, d uh, inclusive development and economic outcomes. And UNRWA's today, as in a sense, I would argue, stand vindicated for the work that they were pioneering in the late 80s, early 90s, well into the 90s in terms of what is now considered to be just common sense and good public policy when it comes to uh, macroeconomic development issues. And Tandeka played an absolutely instrumental and central role in, in setting the course and maintaining the agenda and the prominence and the profile of UNRIST. Uh, he's, uh, for many reasons, deeply engaged with Swedish society, speaks, uh, speaks at fluent. Um, and uh, has recently become uh, a granddad to, uh, I presume, partially Swedish children, right? Uh, twins. Um, and, uh, but also holds, amongst many other positions there, uh, the Ulf Palm uh, Professor in for Peace uh, that, that is based in Sweden. Of course, his day job, apart from all of these and continuing to be an internationally recognized expert and, and, and speaker in, in great demand, uh, is really 
to continue to plow away at thinking about the specificity and the unique circumstances of the African uh, and national development and regional development question. And of course, as we've heard from the debates and from Chris's uh, fantastic overview, is that we find ourselves in a very unique historical movement. The form and the dynamics and the drivers of globalization is unprecedented. Um, the role of finance capital within those processes and what it means for industrialization pathways are singular at the moment. The rise of these new emerging economies represents a completely different multipolar political economy that has an impact on trade negotiations, on climate negotiations, and on a whole variety of factors that has to be incorporated in how national strategies and regional, regional configurations have to be dealt with. Also, within this, we find ourselves confronting an unprecedented cultural phenomenon where young people growing up uh, in the era of social media and completely different cultural reference points in terms of the proliferation of consumer culture uh, and so forth have a completely different relationship with the state, with the economy, with the possibility of work, the nature of work, and so forth. And none of these conditions aligned in quite that way in uh, the first industrial revolution, nor uh, in the, peri the post-Second World War period or in the rise of the, the, the newly industrialized economies. And so the questions we ponder are in many ways unprecedented, and the speed with which Africa's economic and demographic transition is unfolding at the moment demands of us to, to, to come at many of these questions in an, in an absolutely original and fresh way. And so Tandeka's work on things, uh, Tandeka's work on things like macroeconomic policy doctrines and how Africa can circumvent some of the dogmas, the work on rethinking industrialization pathways, his work on rethinking pan-Africanism, his work on what the developmental state debates may mean in the African case, how do we think about social employment and the safety net in the context of hollowed-out states, What's the role of social sciences in the development story, the role of African intellectuals in the renaissance and the renewal of the African agenda are all questions that is thought about deeply and that is written about extensively. And he brings that experience to bear to the question of the black box that we all like to refer to, which is this, this elusive idea of political will, that if only we can get our leaders to exercise will, we know what the pathways, we know what to do. And tonight, we will, Tandika will share with us some of his reflections on what we can do to demystify uh, this idea, but also in relation to this absolutely critical policy question of regional integration in a context where we know that whether it's infrastructure, whether it's education, or whether it's any, any other kind of, of long-term development agenda, unless we can get regional cooperation and coordination resolved, it is going to be very difficult to optimize the opportunities that Chris was outlining. So, Tandika, thank you very much for being here, and we look forward to your remarks and, of course, to your responses to what will no doubt be provocative and, and, and challenging questions. Thank you. Thanks, Edgar, for your introduction and uh, for the naughty remarks about my, my Dakar life. Um, uh, I'm, most, I'm most grateful uh, for the opportunity to be here. I, was, I, I spoke last year on something related to um, the theme that was discussed on Africa rising, and uh, and and I'm now talking on something on, on, on integration, which has somehow disappeared in the African intellectual circles, um, partly because of what happened in the 80s. After the great uh, Lagos Plan of Action document, uh, which came out in 1980, 81, and in the same year as the uh, Berg Report, which uh, was published by the World Bank, and which became the dominant document on... Uh, uh, on, on African uh, economic policy, the issue of integration somehow disappeared. And, I, uh, and then with the liberation of South Africa, um, and I would also, also argue with rise of new democracies, we had a new, a new wave of uh, uh, attempts at reviving the idea of, of democracy. Uh, Mbeki in South Africa, Kosovo Basanjo in Nigeria, and Wad in Senegal, 
push the idea of NEPAD and try to revive the idea of, uh, of, of, um, of integration. So it's been a very long story about how to bring up to integrate Africa. The, uh, the, the, what I want to discuss today is the fact is the, the, the problem of how does Africa re- reposition itself in a global world. And that, my argument is that, that one way of doing that will be through regional integration. And this is not a very new story. Nkrumah made that story very clearly in his famous book, Africa Must Unite. And in, in fact, Nkrumah's work on neocolonialism and his work on pan-Africanism was precisely to argue that the way to resolve the issue of neocolonial uh, rule was to unite Africa. So he understood uh, regional integration not only as an instrument for economic development, but also for uh, something that would be used to reposition Africa in the global world. So I'll, I'll be speaking on, in, 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 in those terms. Uh, I have three slides, and um, now I've got to know how to move this. Um, oh, here we go. Yeah, the first slide is this one here, and it, which both, which illustrates both the nature of the problem of Africa. The, on your left is the, Af, the is African continent, and within the continent of Africa, you can place the United States, uh, you can place China, India, much of Western Europe, Japan, and you would still have space for other countries to, to fit in. That's how big Africa is, okay? and. Um, which also suggests how huge the challenge of integration is. Because you have a large continent with a very poor infrastructure, as somebody also earlier speaker pointed out, which for some reason still holds to the aspiration of integration, despite its huge size. I mean, you're, you're actually integrating China and the US and India. Uh, that's not very easy. So when people say, why can't Africa integrate? You might as well ask, why does China and the US not join and, and, and integrate? It's a, huge, it's a huge problem. On the other side, the other side shows you Africa here. Maybe I point it out. I have a point here. But this, this here is Africa. Right? As an economic, if you are waiting countries according to their economic, or is it here? <laughs> according to their economic uh, strength, that's how Africa would look like. This is how this huge place that can absorb the whole world looks, uh, looks that small on, on, uh, as an economic power. And it is the, the challenge, therefore, is to resolve this question of this large uh, continent uh, with the enormous human resources and natural resources, and Africa as a very small, insignificant part of the world economy. The solution to that, as at least suggested by the founding fathers, had been, well, was, of course, um, a regional integration. And the case for regional integration has been made a thousand times. So I will not, I will not go into the arguments for uh, why Africa should, in, you know, the, the, kind of the, the economics of integration. What I want to address, however, is the, the normal course of the debate about inter- integration in Africa, which runs along the following lines. We all agree, agree that we must integrate. And then towards the end, there's always a statement why aren't we integrating? Because lack of political will. And virtually every book on, on African regional integration ends up with this statement, lack of political will. I think we should try to unbundle what that means. And I, I do that through um, what I call the seven eyes. And the, the first eye that I, I, I try to look at whether these, these seven eyes are as determinants of Africa's experience with integration. Uh, the first of these is initial conditions. Where is Africa? Where did Africa come from, uh, and how have those initial conditions affected Africa's prospects for integration? The second is ideas. Um, the third is interests. The fourth is institutions. Uh, uh, the, then I have what I call industrialization as kind of a, as a proxy for levels of development. And finally, I have the international uh, context. Uh, I could have argued, uh, in African case, you may have to argue, include individuals. And, and, and I'll, I'll say something about the role of individuals as, a, uh, as, 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 as players in the, in the game of re- regional integration. You could in, uh, argue, you know, add more eyes, ignorance, idiocy, and all that, but I'll, 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 leave, I'll, leave, I'll leave those out. Um, and concentrate on, first, the initial conditions. Um, Again, we, we tend to 
because we, we normally tend to look at these initial conditions as something unfortunate and when we end there. You know, by those, those conditions include the fact that we are Anglophone, Lusophone, Francophone, and the fact that there are huge differences in, uh, in economic development, the fact that um, our borders don't make sense. There's a whole range of uh, things that one causes initial conditions that make the integration story look very, very complicated. And, and I think that instead of um, looking at them as simply a constraint, we should look at them as, uh, as elements that will constitute what Africa will be. You know, it's, it's a, uh, that is, the fact that we have so many ethnic groups, so many languages, is, won't be wiped out by uh, declaring ourselves uh, indifferent to those differences. We have to start from the fact that we are a very diverse continent, uh, I think 2,000 ethnic groups, um, 40,000 uh, um, 40, proverbs that are mutually contradictory. And, <laughs> and that's what, we, in a way, what we are. And we should begin to think our, of original integration in Africa on the assumption that that's what Africa is. And, and Africa can build on its diversity, can build on its, uh, uh, must build on, on these initial conditions. The second set of concerns, ideas, um, which, in the case of Africa, Pan-Africanism was not initially, it was not, was not born on the African continent. It was born in, in diaspora. Uh, it was diasporic intellect, you know, the, the, the Africa's diaspora that began talking about uh, uh, the African, the, uh, the Pan-African project. Uh, people like Blyden and Lethron, people like, you know, um, Marcus Garvey, Du Bois, and so forth. And that has had huge implications on how we think about Africa. The early parts of Pan-African thinking did not imagine the question of the nation state. Uh, it was going to be, it, it thought of Africa as a continent. And, and even today, the debate by diasporas on Africa assumes away the nation states and actually conceives the states, nation states as a hindrance to the Pan-African project. And that has in a way affected how we tend to look at the nation state when the bureaucracies in Addis discuss integration, they have an idea of a good thing for Africa, which is called um, African regional integration, and then they look at member states as a nuisance. Okay? Uh, they are delaying integration, or their they you know, they 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 particular interests are blocking the uh, Pan-African project. I think that's, in a way, a wrong way to go about it, uh, and, and I think we have to recognize that by 1958 conference in Accra, the nation state be began to play an important role in, uh, in thinking about African integration. And that a solution to uh, the question of reconciling the nation state and the Pan-African project will have to take into account the interests of, nas of, of, of nation states. Many of our arguments for Pan-Africanism often uh, is at the level where we say, if we integrate, it's good for Africa. There are very few studies that indicate what will be the cost for Gambia, what will be the gains for Gambia, what will be the cost for, you know, uh, for South Africa, and what will be the gains for South Africa. And I think until we do that exercise and find ways of reconciling these differences in both in, in, uh, in the incidence of, of costs and benefits, we will have an African, a discourse on Africa that poses Pan-Africanism as a good thing at the level of, uh, of the continent, but fails to address the issue of, of national interest uh, 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 that, uh, that actually within Africa have become very uh, are real. And we, we in, the, in the process of not, of not doing that, of not uh, considering the, the, uh, the, the national interest, we also fail to if perhaps more dramatically, to consider the interests of citizens in the Pan-African project. The Pan-African project was historically, initially, was a non-governmental project. Eh? Uh, it became a governmental project only in 58, when the first uh, conference, when the, when the Accra conference, on, on, uh, the Pan-African conference held on the African soil. And, and because it's become an intergovernmental project, we do not see much of a discussion within the African, on, on African unity on the interests of social movements, the interests of social groups, interests of labor, or interests of business uh, in the, the Pan-African project. The, the project itself has become a purely uh, almost a state-centric project. And I think one um, 
one of the objectives of, of or at least one of the ways of thinking about Pan-Africanism has to revive the social nature of the, the project itself by taking into account the, the, uh, the, the various interests, not only at the continental level, but at the national level. Nyerere once said that the African Union was a committee of, of dictators, um, meaning by that uh, it was after actually he was angry over the fact that uh, Idi Amin had become chairman of the African Union, of the, of the, of the, of the OAU. And I think that, uh, that statement itself um, raises a third question about African, uh, the, of the, African, uh, the, African, the problem of African integration, that we have been thinking of integration in Africa of, without questioning whether member states actually meet certain standards. The, we, initially, as you know, you may, you may recall, some of you may recall, the African Union was very strong on non-intervention, that African states were not supposed to interfere in the affairs of, uh, of, of other of, of member states. And, and so it has been built largely on authoritarian regimes. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, there has never been a federation of, 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 uh, of dictatorships. And the assumption that we had in Africa that we could actually have these authoritarian regimes that would unite Africa was in a way a little bit naive. And I think we're learning today that hope uh, that uh, you, we need to anchor the project in a democratic, or at least to anchor the Pan-African project at the, on a democratic uh, national level. How you do that, of course, is, is a big problem. But I think one of the things that Nepal did, to its credit, was for the first time there was a there was mention of civil society being interested in Pan-African, in the Pan-African story. And I think the next phase should be, given the fact that we have now a much larger number of relatively democratic states, is to raise the issues of democracy at the Pan-African level. To say that this is one of the most important criteria for membership, or at least forms of, 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 of uh, sanctioning states that do not seem to follow what we think is a democratic order. I think also, the, in, in, um, of, of course, in all this, the state, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we should marginalize the state. I think the, in, in, the state still remains one of the most important actors in this. What I'm, I'm suggesting, however, is that we ought to imagine that the states that represent uh, Africa at the Pan-African level have some uh, democratic uh, credentials that allow them to speak on behalf of their populations. This brings me to the question of industrialization again, which is the... Um, one of the eyes I talked about. And by industrialization here, I'm, I'm using it as a, as a proxy of development. But Africanism has already been associated with the dream for industrialization. And I think we've learned now that um, not only does Pan-Africanism facilitate, can facilitate, not only can it facilitate industrialization, but also the industrialization of, of individual states can, can, can facilitate uh, Pan-Africanism. One of the effects of of a structural adjustment was to remove industrial policy from member states of the African Union. That is, the, the member states themselves today don't have industrial policy. And because there's no industrial policy at, at national level, we, we think we can discuss industrialization at the Pan-African level when, in fact, member states themselves are not pursuing policies that are for industrialization. I would suggest, therefore, that we ought to for the sake of Pan-African ideal, bring back at the national level the question of industrialization. And that the, the Pan-Africanism will be an instrument for making sense of these dis disparate efforts at national level and for providing these national projects a larger vision of, them, of uh, what they can be. If you are in economies which are uh, currently, as we are in, engaged today, which are not industrial, which are, do not have industrialization as a focus, what you have is a focus on the, of uh, a, discuss, a discussion on integration based largely on the on consumption. Uh, the the current perception of African economies is not as you, if you talk about China, you talk about China as a producer. Uh, when you talk about Africa, you talk about Africa as a consumer. And we are seeing that in the discussion about integration. People say, uh, how many consumers do you, if we get Comesa together, we will have so many consumers. And I think that we ought to reflect that on that and see 
those things like commercials or SADC as instruments for industrialization, not only by the region, by the by, uh, by, by the region, or, I'm sorry, by the, by the by the region, but also by, by by national states, and that brings back the agenda of a much more developmentalist integration as opposed to a much consumerist integration. And I think this, the changing Africa's perception of itself as a consumer, as a consuming society, uh, into one that is a, a producing society can, I think, um, uh, make us re rethink the nature of integration away from what is now seen as simply expanding the market as, and, and into one that uh, refers to uh, a process where you're expanding the capacities of the member states to industrialize their, their, their societies. Finally, we, with the, the international context, um, Africa's position today in the international, I think this map that I had earlier on suggests the problems we have, that we are a very large, large continent uh, with very small impact on, uh, um, uh, on the world. I am not sure myself whether uh, in our current relationship with, uh, with, uh, with other parts of the world, and which Chris discussed earlier on, where we are going one by one. Africa, China has this annual conference where they bring African, was it annual event where they bring African heads of state uh, to talk to what, 50 something states to talk to one state. Um, that kind of asymmetry does not help Africa very much. And it is amazing that we have not, that in fact the, the headquarters of uh, the African Union was constructed by China. It's amazing in the sense that in the early parts of the African organization or the OAU, it was explicitly stated that all the, fund, the funding of Pan-African events would be funded by African governments. And, and I think it's, it's, it's an unfortunate shift in, in terms of policy that the only instrument that Af Africans have had, have had for asserting themselves globally uh, can be an aid-driven uh, institution. And I'm, by the way, it's not only China that's the problem. If you go today in Addis, you'd be surprised how many projects within the African Union are funded by the European Union, uh, which I think is a contradiction in, in, in terms. But significantly, we, we have to think of, to rethink, the, in, in a very crude sense, if you like, uh, how our position in the international order will be defined not only by the outsiders, but by, us, by what we do among ourselves. And to bring back the notion of, the old notion which was called there's a collective self-reliance, if you like, uh, but in, to bring back the idea that Africa can reposition itself by a regional integration that is much more uh, socially anchored in, uh, in, in member states, that takes our diversity seriously, as, as, not as a... As an, uh, as a um, as a disadvantage, but as, as an asset that hopefully is built on states that are democratic and that are, uh, represent people, uh, their, their, member state, their citizens in a Pan-African context. That requires rethinking the politics of African unity away from an interstate activity to a much more democratic and much more, if you like, uh, Pan-African social movement uh, activity that re Re, brings back the Pan-African project from states to, uh, to citizens of, of, the, of the continent. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Tandika. Tandika. Um, so as we open the floor um, for discussion, um, maybe just to draw your attention to um, something that's worth downloading is uh, the Murray Brown Foundation just published a couple of weeks ago their facts and figures uh, um, report on regional integration. And, uh, and I'll maybe just highlight four sort of outstanding points that they make. Um, only five out of the 54 African countries offer visa-free access on, on, or visas on arrival to other African citizens. Only five out of 54. Total intra-African trade amounts to only 11.3% of Africa's total trade with the world. And very significantly, and again speaking into the particularity of the African economic story, informal cross-border trade is estimated at 43% of Africa's official GDP. 43% informal cross-border trade. And lastly, 
And just as a way of, I suppose, for ourselves, uh, sort of uh, uh, returning to the opening slide about just the vastness of the continent, the distance between Lagos and Nairobi, as an example, is more than 10 times the distance between London and Brussels. And so I think the point is very well made about, um, you know, how important it is that we don't just create equivalences, for example, between the, the EU and, and the African Union uh, in a glib way. So the table is fantastically decked. Uh, the floor is open. We'll follow the same format. We'll collect three to four comments, questions, and we'll ask you to introduce yourself, please, before you start. Thank you. Who's going to go first? Please, sir. Well, thank you, Tendika, for such an uh, inspiring uh, talk, as usual. Um, a, there's an element, I think uh, the, the traditional uh, expression is that uh, charity begins at home. But recent Africa seemed to be going to charity begins inside of an individual of me. <clears throat> And uh, I wanted to know the extent to which that has destroyed moral community. You're not thinking of a community anymore. You're thinking of an individual. And that destroyed the space for politics and possibly the original integration. It may be difficult to build uh, pan-Africanism with that mentality. Greed based on individuals rather than uh, extending... Uh, to your neighbours and uh, your own community. Thank you. Thank you so much. Next, please, Evan. Hi. Hi uh, my name is Evan Kinnis. I'm a PhD student at UCT. I, I do want to ask you what your thoughts are. Maybe you can comment on the wars that's ravaging the continent, particularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo and sucking in other states. Uh, what effect that has uh, on the Pan-African vision and project. Um, thank you. Thanks, Evan. Please. Yeah. My name is Andrews uh, Pifal alumni and uh, today a uh, July school student. Um, I just want well, just thinking aloud. Will Africa ever integrate? Um, looking at uh, from 1950, the Kraken Census. And then uh, looking at now, how long did it take the European Union to integrate as compared to the number of years we have been talking about integration and unity? And then uh, also probably uh, if you look at African leaders, particularly who have spearheaded integration processes, what happens to them? From Kwame Nkrumah, what happens to his government? Through to Gaddafi, what happens to his government? What happens? Is African integration a threat to anyone? Um, is it not time, if we are not integrating, to begin to rethink what will benefit the people of Africa? Do we need to continue thinking integration? So we'll take the last comment question for this round, and then in the second round, we'll collect at the back. Thanks. I'm Mauli from Invest of Ghana. I am, thank you very much for a very insightful um, presentation. But I'm not an economist, so you may forgive my ignorance. I'm just talking from off the top of my head. Um, I want to find out if the integration, does it always have to be whole? Um, can't, be, can't it be in bits? Can't we start from somewhere? Can't it start from maybe trade or something? Does it always have to be a whole integration? Maybe it's too big a chunk for us to bite. Probably. I don't know. I'm asking. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, um, yeah the, the first question... Augustine. Um, in a sense, I mean, the reason why politics matters is this, that regional integration without some sense of solidarity uh, creates problems. I mean, uh, the, uh, and without some large sort of driving ideology of, of solidarity. And African countries have exhibited, when it was important to do that, solidarity during the liberation struggle. Yeah? And, and um, and I think when one looks back to the history of Africa, this one probably one of their proudest moments was Africans stood and supported their, you know, some at enormous cost, 
the liberation of, of, the, of the African continent. So I think we ought to revive that notion of solidarity because that, that is how you share costs and how you share benefits. Has, uh, can only so in, in a very unequal continent will have to involve some form of solidarity. I think uh, um, uh, so the, the notion of a technocratic Pan-African project that's not sustainable. So I, I, I think that's an important thing to bring back to. Uh, 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 and I think people like Nkrumah, Nkrumah is interesting to read because he, uh, he, he writes the economics of integration, but he spends a lot of time thinking about the mentality of, you know, what, what conscientiousism and all that. What should the African mind think about in terms of, uh, of integration? And we've lost that kind of thinking about the continent as a, that this is a project. It's not a technical project. It's also a project of solidarity. It's a project of uh, how we live with each other uh, uh, and so forth, which bring, brings back the question of war in Africa, of conflicts in Africa. Um, there are two stories about African conflicts. So Afri- much of Africa is not, that most people in Africa are not living in conditions of conflict. There is, a, there is a, almost a belt, you can actually draw a belt of a very, uh, of, of very deep co- conflict. But, and when the conflict affects a country like Congo, it's, it really that's, it hits at the heart, at the heart of the continent. Uh, it's difficult for me to see African integration if the Congo is not at peace itself. And, and those conflicts do make this project of Pan-Africanism and so forth very difficult to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to pursue. But at the same time, um, I think the Pan-African project provides some of the answers to the conflicts of countries like Congo. There are a lot of cynical views about how we should proceed in Africa. Some people say that we should abandon the Pan-African project and allow countries in Africa to fight each other uh, in the European sense and uh, let the big the big countries emerge and, and take over the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the smaller states, and that, that is how you build uh, strong states, and that's how Western history was made. I think in Africa that would be really irresponsible <laughs> to, to, to embark on, the, on, the, on, on that project. And there are some uh, principles within Africa which have helped us a lot. You know, the, the idea of, of respecting borders as they are, and um, these borders are crazy. All borders are artificial, so there's no, we shouldn't think, worry too much that African borders are artificial. No. There are very few countries, I don't know of any country which has borders that are not artificial. They are historically constructed by armies, by invasions, and by, by what. So that principle has helped, has kept Africa at peace with itself to an extent, of, of, having, of at least of avoiding intra, you know, interstate uh, conflicts. There's also the principle which is, um, we're moving away from, but we're now a, a new principle emerging about Africa of that member states must be accountable for the welfare of their citizens to other member states. You can't just go on and kill people in your country in the name of sovereignty. So that's an important change, and I think it's a, a change that will affect how we conduct pan-African politics. But definitely, uh, we have to have an APAC, a Pax Africana based... Uh, on our African institutions to resolve uh, Africa, uh, African conflicts. Otherwise, we will have others coming in. The, Africa, you know, the U.S. is talking about bringing uh, the African into Africa to uh, resolve African problems. And, and we just have to strengthen our African institutions to, to deal with that. Will Africa ever integrate? I, um, like, as Gramsci would probably have said, uh, here is a case of where the the optimism of the spirit and the pessimism of the mind, you know, that sometimes <laughs> the mind might be very skeptical about it. But I, I think that, look, there are certain things about African cultural, cultural, certain things that we don't pay attention to about Africa. There is no continent that I know of that is as sung about, as painted, as sculptured, as drawn, as worn as the African continent. Okay. You go anywhere in Africa, see African earrings, Every African musician has sung a song on Africa, and, uh, and you, they, you go to a barber shop. There's an African map on somebody's head. They, it's 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 the the consciousness of the continent is very strong, and the notion that there's something called Africa is very strong. Uh, our headache has been that we have not been able to find the institutional and political correlates to that uh, emotional. A commitment to the continent. And, and, and I would argue, actually, Europe is the other way around. That Europe is perhaps, they have found institutions, but they don't have probably the same kind of emotional symbolism that Africa, uh, Africa has. So, if, more, if people, in most countries, if they woke up one morning and they were told that now you belong to the U.S. of Africa, people wouldn't be, they wouldn't commit suicide. I mean, they would, 
they just probably say, well, it's happened. I don't think it would be such a shock for them as, as a people to, 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 be, to find themselves in a situation, something called the U.S. of Africa. So the constraint really is not so much a cultural resentment to the project, or, but, but it's much more the failure for us to create institutions and to resolve the different uh, uh, interests and to, to get our ideas together about what the, this project is all about. And so I, I, I remain optimistic about um, uh, the prospects of, of, of integrating Africa. How you proceed is a big debate. You know, there was one extreme, which was the Nkrumah, which was almost create immediately uh, a U.S. of Africa. There was Nkrumah, the Nyerere project, which was you begin by region and region by region, and you know, you've you got the ECOWAS and you've got Comesa, um, and. Africa will have to invent something very new about how to do it. We, we are now trapped, unfortunately, by the European Union success story, you know, which makes us think that we have to fo follow the same steps as Europe did. Uh, I think we, should, we ought to, be, to think very differently from, uh, from how the, the European did it and, and find between the Nkrumah's vision of United States of Africa next day and the more step-by-step uh, -step Nyerere uh, uh, vision, find a combination or, or, or a, some modes of, of working together that can make this project uh, feasible. Nkrumah's warning was that we must unite or, or die. I mean, that is, that is, that, that, <laughs> it was as, as hard as that, uh, or, or perish. And, and I think there was, we, there was, we need perhaps that fear, <laughs> the fear that we will perish uh, to get our act together uh, and, and to get away from certain complacency about Africa rising and all that and, and to, to sense that, in fact, we're doing very badly in the global, you know, in the global environment. Uh, really, and I think, I hope that the next, next generation of, of uh, 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 the, the younger Africa are a little bit skeptical about, of course, these Pan-African projects because what, what they have seen is just talk. They say, well, African heads of state meet and they talk and they sign agreements and nothing happens. And so you find a lot of cynicism about, about the African project from, from the uh, 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 younger generation. But at the same time, I think they, when they, especially when they travel out of, out of Africa, uh, they are then reminded constantly that they are from Africa. Uh, you can forget it when you're here, but when you when you're out out of <laughs> when you get out of Africa, you are reminded of the constantly reminded of a continent that is not doing well in uh, in terms of very many social indicators. Thank you. Um, we'll start at the back. There was a gentleman right at the back, and then we'll come forward on the on my left hand side, and we'll see if we have time. Thanks. Evening, my name is Langan Dondini, and um, I'm at PSP Icon, which is a business consulting firm. Um, so, as you have it from time to time, um, business leaders do ask us the question and say, um, how do I grow my business? And um, we go and do our analysis, and we pull up um, The Economist, and one of the answers is Africa Rising, 330 million um, middle class people, etc., etc. And very often, then it's kind of the refrain is um, something similar to some of the questions you've raised in your talk, um, which relate, in essence, to integration. Um, some of the nation states are on their own, not necessarily as big. So typical refrains would be um, corruption, bureaucracy, blah, 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 um, laws that don't necessarily make sense and, and so on, are difficult um, to conduct business, etc., etc. Um, so at least today I can ask for advice, which is not normally it's the other way around. How do we advise business leaders um, for which if you don't look at the political economy, there's a great business case for expanding and growing into Africa and essentially growing the integration in terms of trade. How do you advise them given a political economy maybe that is not necessarily so enabling and great from their perspective? Great. Thank you very much. Can I just ask the next couple of speakers to be... To the point and sharp, thanks. Yeah. Mm. Uh, 
Good evening, my name is Adrian Timos from the South Center in Geneva. Uh, you mentioned about industrialization and infra infrastructure. I'd like to know if you could give some comments on the role of emerging powers on boosting these two important sectors or impeding, and how much EU traditional donors have helped to develop these two sectors or also to block the development of these two sectors in the past decades. Thank you very much. Okay, and that same row on the left. Yes. Um, thank you for the talk. I'm Ichim back from the University of Dastrom. I would wish to know if it's possible um, economically dependent countries like these of Africa can form outstanding integration. That's one. And two, do you think it's high time for the African countries to sign uh, economic partnership agreements in connection with the existing region integration? Thanks. Thanks. And in front here, uh, Kate Megan. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my name is Kate Maher from the LSE, and thank you very much for, as always, a, an interesting and insightful presentation. I wanted to, to raise a question about, I was trying to think of a synonym that starts with I, but agendas. And I'm wondering, to what extent do you think that the vision of integration that you're talking about actually is going to have a chance in view of the, the current agendas about integration? We have the, the spectacular arm twisting that has underpinned the European Union-led agenda for African integration, the Economic Partnership Agreement, and the new agenda, the Continental Partnership Agreement that's being led by international powers that's really pushing, um, stampeding the Africa, African Union into a new continental-wide integration agreement, giving them about three years to pull it off and setting the terms for them. To what, what are the possibilities, what are, would be the strategies for Africa actually to create a situation in which their own agenda leads integration, rather than having various forms of integration foisted out upon them on other people's terms? Great. Thanks, Kate. So I know there's a couple of hands on this side, um, but I'm going to ask uh, uh, Tandika to respond now, and then if we have time left, we can grab one or two more questions. If not, uh, there will be an opportunity in the break uh, where people can uh, pose their questions directly. So, Tandika. Yeah, let me start off by saying... Um, by emphasizing ideas is, is, was, uh, was, is deliberate in a sense that I think that uh, one of the things that happened in, in, even around the Nepal discussion, there was, there was somehow a, 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 um, a downplaying of what ideas were driving a Pan-African project. And, uh, except perhaps that President Mbeki kept on raising, raising the issue of what was the idea behind uh, regional integration. So I think the ideas matter. <laughs> the, uh, the European Union, uh, some of the founders of that were young Eurocrats uh, who were you know, disgusted by the war and uh, had this vision of a new uh, Europe that would have no conflicts between, you know, among themselves. And they, they constitute what eventually was called as Eurocrats. That maybe we need a group of Africans, highly skilled Africans and highly committed to a project of Pan-Africanism and that um, where they combine both commitment and skill to do something uh, new. What, what we do have now sometime more in some of our regional, office, or regional organizations are people who are there on, and they're looking for a job in the World Bank. They're just temporarily in Addis, uh, in, or, or they unfortunately ended up in Addis, but they would rather be in Washington. So you, <laughs> you, you probably need a new generation of, 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 uh, of, of, of specialists. Um, the business, uh, I, one of the, 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 in my notes, which I didn't, I, I didn't bring, bring uh, to talk about very much, was that we have not really engaged any social interest in the, in the Pan-African project. And one of the new, new actors are, are business. There are um, huge companies now, in, African companies, that are working across the, 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 the continent, whether it's, and mostly from Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, and so forth. And we, in our discussions about Pan-Africanism, the Pan-African project, we did, we did don't know what they want, what these, these, these new interests would consider 
as helpful in their, uh, uh, in, in their activities and what commitment they themselves have to the Pan-African project. And so we have the, the ShopRites and the MTN, the Dangotes and the Nigerian banks everywhere. Uh, and, but in the discussion about uh, the key actors, uh, we think it's only heads of state. We, we do not bring in all these other uh, uh, actors and to imagine what they would think was a, an, an intelligent project of regional integration. But that would require also that you're talking of a, of a capitalist class that has a vision of itself. And if they are what people used to call in the old, good old days petty bourgeois uh, uh, <laughs> comprador elements who just, buy and sell, who just buy and sell, they may not have a project which requires production, uh, which requires technology, which requires uh, a much, much more developmentalist uh, uh, interventions by, by the state. And then, we, of course, it won't help very much. But I, 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 I do believe very strongly that we ought to bring in, in the debates about the Pan-African project, such interests as, uh, as business in, in, uh, in the African project. Infrastructure, of course, is a big headache for Africa. And it is one of the legacies of structural adjustment. Um, the, it, there was for, for, if you look at the, Af the construction of dams in Africa, something like 90% of the dams today in Africa were constructed in the 60s and 70s. Nothing happened for 20 years because we were told, well, you know, the private sector would come in and... Uh, and, and a couple of years ago, two years ago, the World Bank published a, well, four years ago, they published a major report on infrastructure and development. <laughs> and, uh, and the World Bank is very good at, at uh, stating things like uh, uh, donors have ignored infrastructure, uh, but they don't say very much that they were very instrumental in an argument against state provision of public goods such as infrastructure. So there's a legacy. The, the, one of the so the, the um, aspects of maladjustment for Africa has been really serious infrastructure problem. Every African city has blackouts, almost 30% of their time. The traffic jams are impossible. And, of course, the, uh, there is a backlog. And according to the World Bank, we have to invest $93 billion a year just to, to deal with the backlog. And that lack of infrastructure, of course, delays um, uh, Africa's integration. It's unfortunate that... Uh, the institutions which were set up, like African Development Bank, until quite recently, didn't take, assume their role. They were set up, if you, again, if you go to the founding fathers of the African, the OAU, the African Develop Development Banks were supposed to finance re large-scale regional infrastructure projects. Uh, unfortunately, in the 80s, it was captured by the Washington uh, crowd, and began participating in so-called policy uh, funding, funding uh, of policies. And later on, in some social, you know, building primary schools here, there, uh, clinics in, in, in member states, which was not really the original uh, political role of the ADB. It's now changed quite a lot. The ADB now is one of the key players on regional projects. And I think countries like South Africa and Nigeria should push the ADB even further to invest. Uh, it's the only Pan-African institution that we have now that can raise the kind of funding to fund the infrastructure that Africa needs. And there have been studies that, at least between the insurance money in Nigeria and South Africa, you can raise the $93 billion to fund, to fund the infrastructure within, uh, with, with African money. Can you have integration when you're econ uh, economically uh, dependent? Uh, economic dependence obliges you to seek economic integration, that is, to, one way of fighting against economic in, uh, dependence is through economic integration. At the same time, the very fact of being economically economic dependent makes integration very difficult. Uh, we know with African experience when agreements reached by, by member states are unscrambled by one of the major powers calling member states not, not to sign a certain agreement or to join a certain agreement. So it, it creates a, a serious problem of, of, um, of how does, uh, how do you integrate states that are not really autonomous, that are beholden to other authorities outside the continent. I would argue that, again, coming back to uh, uh, the Pan-African project, which was 
to argue that separately we will, before, we will remain independent. And that one way of addressing our dependence is by, um, by economic integration. So the, the, we've seen with this EPA, somebody raised the issue of uh, the, the EPA agreement, where African countries initially said they wouldn't sign the agreement collectively. <laughs> Usually African governments, when they speak collectively, they're very pan-Africanist. Uh, it's when they go home now and they have to face the country or the big powers one by one. There you see them one by one backtracking from the, you know, the, the regional agreement. And hopefully the, the resistance by the few that are still resisting will block this ever, ever process. I mean, the, the, the European Union has, it, has a project a project to defend European interests, and they have a right to do that. And we just have understand that that's their project. It's a project, and, the, and the, if, if you talk to the Eurocrats, um, when they negotiate over anything, it can be over the price of mangoes, uh, they do it with absolute commitment to the European project. And, and that we have to learn that they, they are pushing the airpas no matter what they say about that it's going to help Africa, it is a European project with European interests. And I think it's been very, so far at least, there's been a resistance by Africans, which I think should be encouraged, although it looks like the resistance is crumbling in a, because some of the countries have, have given up. Uh, well, the agenda of others for Africa, um, again, Africa, as I said, is a very big place and it's a lot of resources, so there will always be agenda by other people for the continent. And, and those agenda will be for the interests of those countries. And, and we, sh- we shouldn't expect more, uh, more, more, more from others than, than that. The strange thing today in Africa, I think politically, is that when Africans had good position economically in the 70s, you know, the, with a resource-rich Africa at that time, the prices were going up, there was a boom, just like today was a big boom. The response then was a more pan-Africanist argument. The, the push for the new international economic order and the Lagos Plan of Action was actually at the height of Africa's doing well, if you like. If you like. Uh, that the African countries could then argue we have our own foreign exchange and we can let's, let's build a, 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 a new African institutions. Uh, today's boom has not been accompanied by that kind of discourse. Um, and that, me, that worries me a little bit. Not a little bit, it worries me a lot in the sense that uh, while as the boom of the 70s led to a discussion about industrializing Africa, about Lagos plan of action, about a new international economic order, the current boom, there's no pressure yet for industrialization. In fact, I, I, if you do a kind of simple regression on the, um, the elasticity of the manufacturing sector to economic growth. It's much less today than it was in the 70s. That in the 70s, a 1% growth rate in, uh, of the economy would lead to a 1.3% growth in, you know, in industry, and today it's much lower. Uh, so that the industry is not responding, and the governments are not taking policies to, to translate the new wealth into industrialization. And I think this is quite historically is an unfortunate, because that's, you should be able to assert yourself more, more, uh, more strongly now that we're in a better position. And if we don't use this window of opportunity to make one more uh, step forward uh, by strengthening some of the ex- existing institutions of, of Pan-Africa, of, of uh, regional integration, we will, I, I think, we'll, we'll have lost a fantastic opportunity. But it is a fact that others have agenda, and that agenda is very loudly and very uh, noisily made. And some of the responses, of course, it's tempting to argue that the African res- responses is because their leaders are corrupt or they, they, are conspira- they have conspired with uh, uh, the northerners. I'm, uh, uh, my advice on that is one has to take Napoleon's remark on this very seriously, uh, that you must never attribute uh, to conspiracy what can be explained by incompetence. That, that <laughs> there are large, type, many agreements that we signed that really reflect incompetence of our, our, our regional bureaucracies. And maybe one thing that UCT should think about is producing new educated Afrocrats that can manage, can think of the, the diplomacy of Africa, can begin to think intelligently about the African continent and the African project.
I just want to thank uh, Tandika for that scintillating overview and a framework for thinking about these questions around the, the various eyes. And I think what emerged from the discussion uh, is, of course, how the eye of infrastructure is an interesting connecting glue between uh, institutions, the importance of a vision, ideas, uh, interests, industrialization, and so forth. And as a thinking audience and as a questioning audience, I just want to leave you with, I suppose, a set of further provocations on the back of, of, of this talk, and that is that um, that there is a, 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 an intense opening up of a debate at the moment as part of the restructuring of the AU around this, uh, this notion of Africa 2063. So it's a campaign that was launched last year by the president of the AU, Dr. Mkosazana Zuma, and there's precisely this call for academics, for intellectuals, for business leaders and to contribute, and specifically to spell out what is the industrialization component over the, the, this 50-year trajectory. And I think given the talk that we've heard, the importance of a different genre, a different generation of leaders and thinkers, the opportunity is there for us to grab, to inform in that. And can I just urge that you try and resolve two big uh, challenges. The one is how are we going to deal with the fact that our labor force on the continent is at 400 million at the moment and will be 1.2 billion by 2050? And of the current 400 million, only 28% are in stable jobs, according to ILO, and the remainder are in precarious employment. So where are the jobs going to come from? What is the vision for a unique industrialization strategy? And how do we infuse that vision with the absolute imperative of building carbon-neutral economies by 2050? And this, I would argue digging our own archives, thinking through the past, thinking about the specificity of a context is in fact the intellectual project that is going to address the question about what regionalism might mean in practice uh, for Africans driven by Africans. Thank you very much and I hand over to our, uh, our host to close the proceedings for us. Thank you. Thank you.